0: What's up, folks? This is the Investor Weekly News update for April 24th. We're going to be talking interest rates, and we are going to be going through a listener question at the end, talking about what's the difference between 12% real estate deals and some of these 15% plus flyer deals with unsecured debt. So let's get into it. First thing that everybody's kind of been taking a look at is where the inflation has been, because that is what the Fed is increase in interest rates for to control this inflation. As you guys know, it peaked in about 9.1% back in last summer of 2022. And this latest reading, the CPI came in at 5% in March, down 6% in February. The Labor Department said that it was better than economists' expectation that inflation had risen 5.2% last month for the year. It also represents the smallest 12 month increase since May 2021. We are heading in the right direction and maybe the interest rates can stop increasing. I still think they'll go up another one or two more times. Who knows how long it'll hold. In previous cycles, the Fed dropped interest rates very quickly, but I don't see I see them holding it there for maybe about half a year. There is a bunch of slack in the system when you do this, of course. They could probably not raise rates any bit today, maybe even drop it, and CPI would still drop slightly because there is a lag in the timeline. BlackRock's head of iShares said that we can safely say that we are past peak inflation, but it's too early to call victory against inflation. That's a strange quote right there. Saying one thing and then creating it out for themselves later. But hey, at least it's a person who actually has skin in the game, somebody at BlackRock, as opposed to one of those shifty economists out there that have no skin in the game. He continues to say, while we believe inflation will continue to remain stubbornly high for the rest of 2023, we can expect it to moderate by the end of the year and still remain above the Fed's 2% target. So as you guys know, the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates at the most aggressive place in decades and they're saying also that housing costs are still a key driver of inflation, which we'll get into in this next article from Shendon Economics. The headline reads, Adjusted CPI inflation falls at 2.4% for homeowners and 5.1% for renters. So basically, this is saying that the uh, if you're a homeowner, you're a little bit more immune to inflation, feeling the impacts of that than the renters, which I think all of us can makes logical sense. And again, it also goes with the whole storyline of the people who are have money and have homes are typically the more affluent people. The rich get richer and the poor get bored. What can I say? Depends. And that's why we tell everybody, buy assets, stop putting your money in. Yeah, I guess buying a house to live in is better than nothing. But once you get some free cash flow coming, you make a few hundred thousand dollars and you are able to save at least 50 grand, start getting on the off and start buying assets that produce income for you. Also, so you can get your alternative investments up. I haven't seen very many people get above two or three million by the time they hit age 45, which is our typical median age in, in our investor group. Unless they have more than 40 to 50% alternative investments. What is alternative investments? I don't include your primary residence in there. I guess you could if you really wanted to stretch it to see how you measure up against the 40, 50% alternative investment people. Most people have less than 10% alternative investments in their network. And it's all those traditional stocks, bonds, mutual funds, that type of stuff. Why alternative investments? I've said it before, but I said it again, because still people are under that 20% range. You want alternative assets because they typically will produce passive income for you and passive losses, which you can use to pay a lot less in taxes. And that's the game changer, folks. If you guys want to learn more about that, go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax, or you can also join the Investor Club at com slash club. We are revamping the member site, which you guys get for free with a bunch of e-courses in there. At the moment, the website is down. And because we are in the middle of a overhaul on that, and we are also going to be rebranding to something in the future. I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag. But if you guys are in like the free Facebook group, which I don't think is best networking because it's free right you pay for what you get you guys will probably be the first people to hear about what we're moving towards sad to say probably have to get rid of the really annoying green color is what my marketing team tells me but maybe i'll keep it around if you guys give me some feedback on that but anyway getting back to that shandon economics report renters are experiencing a higher inflation CPI than homeowners at 9.3% versus 7.5%. The inflation spread between these two groups has continued to widen through March of 2023. The difference between renter and fixed rate homeowner personal inflation rates have reached another all-time high, hitting 2.6 percentage points. And I guess this chart right here is measuring the spread or Just call it what it is, the divide between the haves and the have-nots, which is getting wider and wider. This next article from the Joint Centers of Housing Studies from Harvard University, they're talking about home modeling market predicted to contract by 2024. And they're saying after more than a decade of continuous growth, annual spending on improvements and repairs to owner-occupied homes is expected to decline by early next year, with post a modest decline of 2.8% through the first quarter. So if you're watching this on the YouTube channel, and you're seeing this chart that kind of depicts the decline pretty well. That said, when the pandemic happened, the whole modeling, it just skyrocketed. People stuck in their homes. They realized maybe I should fix this door. or I guess maybe that's what I said. Most people thought they were going to do bigger activities, such as model their kitchen or do things around the house because they were staring at it all day long amidst the pandemic and home costs skyrocketed. If you can remember in 2020, when lumber like tripled in price, that was, Um, I think we, sometimes we forget that was the state of the economy. I think part of this is just the pent up demand that got pumped up in 2020, 2021. And this is the slack coming back out of the system. And in many sectors of the economy, This dynamic is playing out where you're seeing that initial slack or that demand push through. And then this is the lag and then we'll restabilize somewhere within the levels that we saw in the last few years. Another thing that they're citing is higher interest rates and sharp downturns in home building and existing home sales are driving projections for sluggish remodeling activity next year. So a lot of people are priced out of buying a home. And either they're not moving and they're deciding to fix up the place that they're in, put more money into it than buying a new house. The other side of this is, of course, where we benefit as landlords is more people can't afford to buy a house, so they become renters. Yeah, tenants of our own. I've actually also seen this play out. We just actually closed on the land in Jacksonville, Florida. The adjacent, it's very developing emerging area on the west side of Jacksonville, right adjacent to our property is a cul-de-sac of brand new homes there. And when I was taking a walk through that, that cul-de-sac, the way I saw it is that it was botched development where they had originally, I think they completed it maybe early 2022, it looked like, and they were going to go to market, but interest rates skyrocketed on them and they were unable to sell it with the lower demand just not, temp- there there weren't many folks in that, I want to say, I, I think the prices of the home may have been a quarter million to 400 grand. That's the sector that kind of got hurt the most, that lower middle class that couldn't buy houses. Of course, the nice thing about real estate, when you build for workforce housing, is that there's always an alternative holding plan, which is to rent it out, which is what they, they did. It's great because they're pushing the top line rents as their little bit larger option which we don't really like to be. We typically like to be a notch lower than that. One bedroom, maybe two bedroom, 1,200 square feet at most, where these homes, they just don't capture the amount of rent per square foot or rent of rent of value, as we like to say. That's just the state of the economy right now. And that's that's kind of why we like to focus in on that. About $1. fifty rent per square foot, some of the metrics and then, course, close to that 1% rent-to-value ratio, especially in a brand new property. Now, if you're looking, if you guys are still buying little rental properties, which I don't know why you would be if you're an accredited investor. If you're not an accredited investor, I don't know why you listen to this podcast, but if you're going to be an accredited investor, you're not finding rental properties that are even close to hitting that 1% rent-to-value ratio that are... Either in crummy areas or in 70s, piece of garbage or older. The apartments tend to last a little bit longer because it's a little bit more commercially taken care of, where the single family homes, man, those things just take a beating, and that cap capex wave definitely hits you after once you get into like more of a 1960s and older property. Yahoo Finance reports that Blackstone with regional banks with lending. Gotta love that Blackstone, right? They always insert themselves into the places where it's needed so they can gouge everybody on the pricing. So they're discussing partnership with US regional banks to help them constraints in areas such as car loans and home improvement financing it's funny when they use the word help them with right for smart business people they know what the need is and they know that there aren't people doing it they, they step in and help them not as bad as those wholesalers that say oh we're trying to help this, these people trying to buy their house at pennies on the dollar and helping them in their situation i call bs to that right like i saw the other day somebody and i, don't know, I even know this these people but posted like oh we helped out this one elderly person i'm like that's BS. You guys took advantage of an old person who was really in a distressed situation. You bought their properties for 40 cents the dollar and then you wholesaled it to a house flipper for 60 cents on the dollar. I don't know. I, like I have always said, I don't really like that type of stuff that relies on taking advantage of people's situations. That said, I totally don't have a problem taking advantage of more wealthy people with 200 unit apartment complexes who pass it on to their kids and the kids don't want it. So we buy it from the kids at good price. But I don't know, maybe it is the same thing at the end of the day. But anyway, they said that some banks have good relationships and borrowers are struggling to remain in them because they're eroding capital base and Blackstone could help them with some of the lending flow. The regional banks generally play a very large role in home improvement loans auto loans and equipment finance. The slowdown in commercial real estate triggered by higher interest rates, fears about an economic slowdown and business consolidating office space in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. The firm has shifted its focus in real estate to resilient sectors such as logistics and rental housing. Blackstone is always doing a gazillion things and real estate is always one of them because it's very resilient sector as they say. The one thing I take from Blackstone is that they're able to diversify, but they put the right asset managers in the right place. This is something that I've thought recently when things are a little bit slow on our end because I don't really want to force deals to happen with interest rates high. We've definitely been approached with PEP Fund or PEP Equity Fund to go in and buy pieces of operating businesses, but not has nothing to do with real estate. Of course, maybe there is some real estate as collateral there, but no, maybe it's not... As much as I consider it, I always feel like, like keep the business plan pure and really not. And of course, you wouldn't need to make a totally new kind of fund for that type of stuff. But I've always thought that our area of expertise is in real estate. And is if you work to go into the more of the private equity sector and are buying painting companies or flooring companies, or you just use those as examples of more brick and mortar, boring or evergreen businesses, that would probably have to go in with more of an operational partner just in case we have to seize the asset right as equity but i don't think i'm going to be heading down that that road if anything you know definitely follow the path of other large private equity firms within the real estate world which is to get more on the preferred equity side and leave the common equity to the common equity retail passive investors to say the least To end this off, you guys have submit questions. So we try and put one of these at the end of these weekly updates. What's better? A 12% return backed by a hard asset, like a like real estate, just preferred equity or or secure debt, or a 15% contract that you see floating around there on the internet. Now, this is a very common mistake that I see new investors make. They'll chase rates, right? They'll see a big number like 15 or 18% return and it may be paying out right away but it you got to look at the asset is it producing that cash flow but i think more importantly the first question that people ask and i've gotten this from copying people right i've watched what sophisticated investors do and the first question that's asked is how am i collateralized what's my security here in a lot of these business deals that you see floating around out there a lot of times it's just unsecured debt that right? you own that see that owns a business as opposed to you owning a that owns a piece of property or has direct title or a contract of equity too. Uh, businesses and you know, the, they can make a lot of money, but the downside is that there is no hard tangible asset. So in case your operators just cease to exist or go AWOL on you, there's nothing to collect. Jokingly, if you were to run a drug smuggling business. Technically, that there is a hard asset, the drugs, but I'm just saying that to make a point that there would be a hard asset there that you could technically sell. Well, maybe this analogy is falling apart because you wouldn't have the the expertise. But if you were to take over a real estate deal and there'd be apartment or a piece of asset, you would ideally be able to sell that asset and maybe slightly reposition it because there's the infrastructure for you to do so there. Now, there's a very liquid broker community to list and sell real estate, as you guys all know. But now when you start to get into the business world and things go haywire in one of those deals, first off, there's no hard asset. There's there might be some inventory, but unlike the drug smuggling business, you know, that inventory may not be worth very much. You may be talking about some raw lumber in the warehouse, or if you're talking an e-commerce business, some crap from China that you bought that you were going to sell for 5X. But if you don't have the infrastructure to sell it and the relationships to sell it, you can't realize that return and you just got to sell it for pennies on the dollar that you bought it for. So that's where, again, it's... What do you secure? What's the worst case scenario? What do you secure by? And that's why even if it's like 15, 18 percent return, um, things go wrong. You're not gonna be able to collect on that. I would say that if your net worth is under a million and a half, which is what I define as if you're under that number, you gotta go. You gotta get going. You gotta get you have to take chances with with less than 10 percent of your net worth into alternative assets, that's not gonna get you there. Again, like I said earlier, I don't really see anybody above two to three million dollars before their forty fifth birthday, unless they get above their forty fifty percent alternative in assets. Maybe every situation is different, and that's why we tell you guys book that onboarding call, and we can take a look at your own personal situation, the tax situation, and what kind of should be a good three to seven year goal for alternative investments as a percentage of your portfolio. As a general rule, if you're under 1.5, you've got to go. You can't really be sitting on cash. Unfortunately, those are the people, especially the non-accredited investors that are mostly timid, which is why they'll always stay non-accredited investors or maybe get $2 million at their 55th birthday if they're lucky and they're really frugal. But that's the, to me, like just looking at what all the investors are doing, that is a huge indicator of where they are in terms of net worth, which is ultimately the score, what percent of their net worth is alternative investments. But as you start to go in, alternative investments can include these business deals that are can include dangerous, unsecured debt. You could protect yourself by getting collateral in other of these assets. They call it cross-collateralizing but that that's gets to be more advanced and if you're not used to doing deals and you don't have your legal team set up, setting up one of those things may be outside of your, your arena. And this is why the easiest thing or the best thing to start out into this world is to just start off with the real basics, real estate deals, where you're buying into a company and see created to hold the asset. So you have shares and LLC that holds a hard asset. And if anything happens, you sell that asset. And hopefully with real estate, it doesn't really plunge in value. That's the nice, that's why we do real estate. But- beware if you see these kind of high flying percent returns, ask the question, is this secured by a hard asset? What's the doomsday scenario? And also just because something has a high pref doesn't mean anything, right? There's some No deal is the same. Sometimes they just throw a high pref in there to kind of fool passive investors, even though you may never get it. And sometimes a high pref can actually hurt investors in the long run. I've seen shady things happen when there's a high pref and the deal operator, the GP kind of falls behind on that pref and they're kind of, what's the point? I'm never going to get paid. Do things that are definitely not fiduciary, but just to unload the deal because hell, it ain't worth it for the general partner. And that's again, where a nice thing you want to see healthy split structures where the GP is incentivized to work the asset on behalf of passive investors, even if they didn't have That futurary component to it. Technically, you're supposed to always have, but numbers, numbers, as we all know, numbers and money definitely influence behavior. But anyway, we'll see you guys next week. Uh, If you guys have any other questions, please submit it. And if you haven't done so, please do me a favor, go and give us a review on iTunes, Google Play, etc. Really helps the channel. And if you wanted to join that Facebook group, shoot us an email. And we'll get you in there and we'll put you in that poll for the rebranding experience that we're going to be going through. Just a little hint there, the com is probably going to be going away. We'll probably be coming up with a new name. But uh, exciting things that happen and we'll see you guys next week. Bye.